Well, here it comes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow! In your life have you seen anything like that? Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. And this week, also a moment of golfing magic from Tiger Woods, as he won the US Masters in Augusta back in 2005. Last year's Masters was one of the first big sporting events to be cancelled due to COVID-19. And the 2021 contest kicked off in grand form this week, one of many hopeful signs of life returning to normal. But a lot of golf courses aren't coming back from the pandemic, and it's all down to the boom in online shopping. Stay tuned to hear more on that and to learn how the UK is managing after 100 days of being properly out of the European Union. First, the return of the V-shaped recovery. In the past few weeks, we've had an outpouring of optimism about the economic recovery, especially in the US. At their annual meetings this week, the International Monetary Fund added its voice to the chorus with the prediction that developed economies could not only enjoy two years of rapid growth in 2021 and 2022, but see little or no permanent hit from the downturn of 2020. The IMF does see inequality increasing due to the pandemic, with 95 million more people having been pushed into extreme poverty and bumpier recoveries in prospect for many emerging market economies. All in all, it seems a good opportunity to check in with our chief economist, Tom Warlick in DC. Tom, you have your own forecasts out. Uh, just give us, give us some of the highlights. So first of all, Stephanie, um, here at Bloomberg Economics, uh, we were a little bit disappointed um, by the IMF rushing out their world economic outlook just a few minutes after we published our global forecast. Seemed like a rather crass attempt to steal the limelight from us. Um, But turning to to the substance, um, the IMF upped their forecast from 5.5% to 6%. That's an optimistic forecast. We're even more optimistic. At Bloomberg Economics, we're penciling in 6.9% growth for the world economy this year. What are the big factors at work? Well, there's two main forces. First, you've got a virus in retreat as vaccines roll out across advanced and some emerging market economies. Secondly, you've got that huge US stimulus, $1.9 trillion, perhaps more to come if Biden gets his infrastructure deal through. That pushes growth in the US up to its highest level since the early 1980s and sends ripples around the world as trade partners benefit from stronger US imports. And we did think, I remember when we were talking about this last year, we thought that emerging market economies uh, would do a lot worse than the developed economies economically, and that everywhere we would see significant permanent scars uh, from this crisis. Are Are we revisiting either of those views? So I think on the emerging market side, uh, there's two big points to make. The first is a point about China. China really dominates the emerging market space. If you think about the size of its economy, it was remarkably successful in controlling its domestic outbreak. It's having a V-shaped recovery, uh, and that significantly shapes the sort of the overall emerging market picture. Second point to make about emerging markets is 
once you get past China, you really have to draw a distinction between the exporters and the borrowers. The exporters, countries like Vietnam, for example, they're going to have a stronger year as they benefit from resurgent global demand. The borrowers, places like Turkey, places like Argentina, are already suffering as US yields, borrowing costs start to rise. Thinking about the sort of the larger scarring story, um, I think the sort of the unique character of the 2020 crisis was really that it was a kind of a pure exogenous shock. It was like the world was hit by an asteroid. There really wasn't a sort of a fundamental problem, a fundamental imbalance with the world economy, which caused the recession. It was just the virus. And so the hope was always that if we can get enough stimulus into the economy to keep businesses solvent, to keep households afloat until a vaccine is found, then we can have a pretty rapid recovery. And so now in countries like the US and the UK, where the vaccines are rolling out fast, that's what we're starting to see happen. I noticed that the IMF, uh, part of their reasoning was that the area, the parts of the economy that have been worst hit, what they would call a sort of contact intensive, so places, you know, hospitality, um, things where people are uh, are in contact with each other, um, that, that, that the damage done to those sectors was more likely to be temporary and would not necessarily feed through to the broader economy and the way that you'd seen for example, the damage in the financial sector and the global financial crisis affect everything. Um, do you think? Do you think there's some truth in that, or are they are they underestimating some of the possible long term effects? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess if you think about the global economy, you can think about sort of critical nodes in the global supply chain um, and other parts of the economy which are important but don't have so many interconnections, don't touch so many other points. So at one extreme. If you blew up Taiwan's semiconductor industry, that would really send some really serious ripples around the world, right? We couldn't make smartphones, we couldn't make cars, we couldn't make laptops. The world economy would, in significant respect, grind to a halt. Um, if you blew up your local Kentucky Fried Chicken or your local um, cinema chain, that would be really bad news for the for the people who worked there bad news for the local residents who enjoyed that service, but the global ripple effects wouldn't be so severe. Um, so perhaps a virus that has devastating impacts on those sort of high contact service industries, but leaves the kind of the sort of the hard infrastructure uh, of the industrial sector largely untouched, maybe it doesn't leave such long term, such deep scars. We were talking to Javier Blas last week about the vulnerable points in the US economy. I feel like we're developing a bit of a sideline and a sort of how-to guide for, for would-be global terrorists who want to bring down um, the global economy, just pointing up the key places they ought to try and hit. Um, I did see that the head of JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon, in his letter uh, for this year had been extremely optimistic about the US recovery and thought that the boom could continue for, for several years. Um, are we seeing risks there? I mean, there is now so much optimism about the pace of US growth and so much government money pouring into the economy. So I think if we go back a couple of months to the end of 2020, um, there were a couple of big negative factors which people were concerned about for the US in addition to the virus. Um, so we had um, a really fragile political situation, 
it looked like there might not be sort of a clear control of the White House and Congress by a single party, and that could stymie attempts at fiscal stimulus. Um, And we had the looming threat of US-China decoupling, and all that could mean for exports um, and for global supply chains. Um, From where we're sitting at the end of the first quarter of 2021, um, both of those problems look to have been resolved or look to be moving in a positive direction. Um, The Democrats have got control of the White House and control of Congress, and they're using that to push through very significant fiscal stimulus and talking about a big infrastructure bill. And US-China tensions, they're they're escalating. Um, But early indications seem to be that they could provide a motive for the US to kind of invest in its future, invest in infrastructure, invest in education in a way which, if done right and if done on on the right scale, could start edging potential growth higher. Um, So certainly things are looking a lot better now than they were three months ago. But let's remember also how sort of tenuous, how fragile the politics which has underpinned this shift is. That 50-50 split in the Senate, which is really the kind of the fulcrum on which all of this is turning, um, could really move in either direction in the years ahead. Well, we're going to hear about uh, the impact of Brexit in the UK uh, in a minute. But it does make me wonder, when you the, the music coming out of Europe and the UK at the moment is much darker than this, uh, feeling that they have really messed up the vaccine rollout in the case of the in Europe, renewed lockdowns, uh, causing some to, to revisit their forecast for the European economy. Is that, I mean, is this the story that we're telling, the sort of bright, bright V-shaped story we're telling is that primarily the US and China we're talking about, with Europe and the UK potentially suffering more damage? So um, the US and China, they're the biggest economies in the world. They're both going to outperform this year. We're penciling in 7.7% growth for the United States on a four-quarter, four-quarter basis, 9.3% growth for China. With those two big economies doing so well, the world picture looks pretty positive. Europe, as you as you know, is is some way behind that. We see four point four percent growth for the eurozone this year, and the recovery starting later because they haven't done so well at rolling out their vaccination program. Still, if you can kind of step outside the kind of the intensity of the moment um, and think about the sort of slightly bigger picture for Europe, yes, their recovery is going to be a bit slower. Yes, it's going to be a bit later, but we still see Europe coming back very strongly from later in the second quarter and heading into the second half of the year. Tom Orlick, thank you very much. Thanks, Stephanie. Now, I mentioned Brexit. Last time we heard from Bloomberg economic reporter Lizzie Burden, she was talking to lorry drivers queuing at the port of Dover, wondering whether they would get home for Christmas. Since then, Britain has properly left the European Union and early, heavily distorted numbers suggest that trade between the UK and the EU has fallen dramatically. If you make your living exporting shellfish, for example, you're hurting. That sector's exports to the EU fell by nearly 85% in January. But what about everyone else? Are all those gloomy forecasts of what Brexit would do to the British economy finally coming true? We asked Lizzie to give us an update. (laughs) 
Almost 100 days since the chimes of Big Ben marked that Brexit was formally completed, the UK government has seemingly banned the B-word, while coronavirus has overshadowed reports of trade disruption. Still, like any divorce, UK-EU relations have been messy since January 1st. Some sectors have been hit particularly hard. I asked James Withers, Chief Executive of Scotland Food and Drink, why it's been so tough for his industry. So for a lot of businesses, it's been a hundred days of pain. They've gone from a position where it was as easy to sell their food and drink products to Manchester and England as it was to send it to Madrid and the south of Spain. What's now happened is just trying to get it into the EU has meant a wave of new paperwork, complexity, a lot of cost into that, and we've seen systems break down. So even if they go perfectly, product arrives late, but when they don't go perfectly, the product doesn't move at all. David Hennig, director of the UK Trade Policy Project at the European Centre for International Political Economy, says British firms are disadvantaged because import checks have been postponed for goods entering the UK, unlike those sent to the EU. It's really unbalanced. So exporters to, uh, to Europe are perhaps wondering why they're the only people who are having to go through um, <laughs> the full set of new checks and nobody else does. Um, and you can, under- you can understand that, uh, that frustration, and I'm hearing it pretty much up and down the country. Northern Ireland's been especially affected because of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which effectively draws a trade border down the Irish Sea. Ashley Piggott is managing director of Craig Avon-based AJ Power, a manufacturing company that's been crippled by additional post-Brexit surcharges to bring components into Northern Ireland from Britain. In January, there was 118,300 consignments into Northern Ireland, which is a very low number. You know, your expectation would be more into the half million plus. And all those consignments have to go through eventually a process with transportation. And typically that adds somewhere in the region of between 20 and 30 pounds surcharge per consignment, irrespective of the value. It's a different story south of the Irish border. County Dublin-based haulier Hannon Transport, which specialises in moving mixed loads of fresh produce, says it's never been busier, as Irish importers and wholesalers are switching from GB to EU-based suppliers. I spoke to Donard McCann, the company's managing director. Certainly in the first couple of months, um, that was a very, very big reduction in, in the, the, the volumes. Um, the, that was certainly set off in a way that the volumes were increased on our other route, which was from the entire island of Ireland to mainland EU. We were fortunate in that the NI protocol hasn't greatly affected us. I mean that in terms of um, whilst we have obviously customers in Northern Ireland and customers in Great Britain uh, moving goods back and forward between GB and NI, that it would make up a reasonably small fraction of the overall volumes that we transport. Some businesses in Britain's more distant EU neighbours are suffering too. Anna Stellinger, Deputy Director of the Confederation of Swedish Enterprise, says a fifth of Swedish companies have had problems trading with the UK since January. More companies say that uh, they will start finding other suppliers. 
than the suppliers from the UK. What we can see now is that with the higher costs, the higher red tapes and the, and the delays in the delivery and the problems in the logistics, Swedish companies are actually looking at other countries to, to source from. So there is less of optimism when it comes to imports from the UK to Sweden. Beyond individual companies' experiences, the first official UK trade data since Brexit for the month of January was skewed by the impact of COVID-19, stockpiling ahead of the end of the transition period, and a hangover effect from the pre-Christmas chaos at the port of Dover when France shut its borders. So I asked David Hennig, what lies ahead? There's still a lot to happen in the UK-EU trade story. This is just the beginning... 100 days. I mean, there is a reason why economic impact assessments for trade deals normally take place over 10 years. There's a huge amount of adjustments still to happen in the UK-EU trade. It seems clear that what the UK government has described as teething problems could be here to stay. Now finally, I promised I was going to explain why golf courses were turning out to be one of the less obvious casualties of COVID-19. Our real estate reporter Alex Wittenberg in New York is going to explain everything. Alex, um, what, why is it that, that the golf courses are, are disappearing at an increased rate thanks to the pandemic? Yeah, so there are about there are kind of two trends that are converging that make up this trend we're seeing. And the first one has to do with the decline in the rate of people playing golf. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, a lot of golf courses started to be built. And that had to do with Tiger Woods coming on the scene and becoming a sensation. And by most accounts today, they overbuilt. So since around the mid-aughts, there have been more golf courses closed than opened. And um, since around 2006, 2,400 courses have closed. So during the pandemic, we've seen a slight uptick in the number of players playing golf. So there's around a 14% increase in the number of rounds played, and that was the first time there was an increase in a while. But still, because of the you know, flood into the e-commerce space during the pandemic, so many people wanting to shop online, not go out into physical stores and not being able to, uh, developers have seen the kind of decline of golf as an opportunity to get into a sector that is... Um, really booming because of the pandemic. And should we be, I mean, I, I bet some of the people living near these golf courses complained when the golf course arrived and then they had no idea they could be much worse. They could be just a gigantic cupboard for Amazon. Is that what we're talking about? Just big warehouses sitting on top of what were greens? Yeah, that's right. And it could be a real challenge when the proposed development is close to where people live because people don't want big trucks driving through their streets 24-7 uh, throughout the night. And that's often where they are, yeah, because usually golf courses are worth more when they're closer to where people live, when they're in more affluent areas. In fact, a golf course can actually bring up the price of a home uh, if there's a home nearby, of course. So there are a number of challenges to conversion, but this is those big warehouses is usually what we're talking about. So all those people who complain should now rush to sign up to their local club to make sure it stays there. Um, in general, we've tended to think commercial real estate has not done very well out of COVID-19. Is this just one of the exceptions? Yeah, exactly. The industrial space is an exception. Um, it actually had its strongest year on record in 2020. 
And for the first time ever, at least since the, you know, at least at the end of 2020, investors had poured more money into the industrial space than into the office space for the first time um, since we've been tracking it. So this was an exception. And a lot of that was driven by the e-commerce boom. And so that is just, I mean, we know that people are assuming or thinking now that fewer people are going to be working in offices or they're going to work less time in offices. Um, but we surely are, are spending a lot more online. You mentioned that there had been a massive overbuild. And of course, that's what happens in real estate all the time. There's a the long lead times and then you end up having overdone it. I mean, this is it's quite hard to reverse once you've dug up a golf course. Do you think this is going to turn out to be overkill as well? Yeah, it might be. I think there's already some expectations that the rate of growth that we saw in 2020 is going to decline in this year when people are starting to go back to shopping in person. It's it's hard to say. I I was on a call with analysts from CBRE not long ago, and they seemed very bullish about the growth of the market in 2021 and beyond. So I think some a place like a golf course, it really depends as well on whether players are going to stay. There are new players who because they were confined to their homes during the pandemic, didn't want or didn't see many other options for being active and taking up a sport. So if that trend does stay, then maybe this is kind of an unwise investment at this point. But I think most people are expecting that once other activities become available, that the old trends are going to come back and that golf courses are not going to be um, as in demand as they once were. So... Well, so that's, again, this one piece of the market, many pieces of the market where people are feeling bullish. Alex Wittenberg, thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. I'll be back next week with a special conversation with the economist and sometime revolutionary Mariana Matsukata. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics during the week, you can follow at Economics on Twitter or you can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson with special thanks to Tom Orlick, Lizzie Burden and Alex Wittenberg. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>